So let's, let's get into this. Um, 2 Corinthians 11. There's a passage there, a scripture there, that when the Apostle Paul is speaking about um, his ministry in the church, and he, and he says this, he says, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. In the, um, oh, I've put ESV twice, sorry. The second one should be the New Living Translation. Um, it says, I betrothed or espoused you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to, to Christ. And, uh, you know, before we get kind of hooked up on, on kind of when we start using words like, you know, you know it's important that the, we realize that word pure and virgin go together because that it's really an expression of that passion for purity. Um, I'll touch on this in a moment of, of being those who are devoted to Jesus and saving ourselves for him. And we'll come back and revisit that in a moment because you might think, got oh, some interesting language here. But because what Paul is trying to express to us to help us understand, and uh, we see this in Scripture, there are many, um, there are different images of Christ's church, but one is that we are the bride, the bride of Christ. And so we, the people, whenever I mention the church today, I just want you just to remind yourself, I'm never talking bricks and mortar, I'm talking people, because it's the ecclesia, it's the called out people of God that is the church. And so let's got, get too kind of hooked up on, on kind of bricks and mortar, but know that we're talking about ourselves. And so we ourselves, as the church, uh, are uh, the bride of Christ. And we see this in Scripture, Christ as the bridegroom and the church, that's me and you, as the bride of Christ. And the Apostle Paul realized that you know, the focus of his ministry within the church, among the people of God, was to seek to want to awaken and deepen uh, the church's love for Christ. And so when you look at this word promised or betrothed or espoused, as we've seen it there, and you look at what that word means in, in the original course, it means all of those things. But one of the things it also means is to woo, W-O-O. It's not a word that we would use very often now, but it's, it's to woo. In other words, what Paul has understood and what Paul is operating is that he understands that ministry within the church should always be about wooing people to Jesus. Wanting to seek to awaken and deepen love for Christ. And so it's not about my ministry quote, and even in that little phrase, you get uneasy. So it's not my church, it's not my ministry. And I know sometimes where we kind of say those things and they kind of, we don't always intend them to perhaps mean like they might do, but is Christ's church and the ministry should be about awakening and deepening love for Jesus, wooing people to him. And so that's why when John the Baptist in John chapter 3 and, and the guys come up to John the Baptist and they're like, John, you've got a problem because. All the people were coming to you. And I don't know if you've cottoned on to what's going, but all of a sudden they don't seem quite so interested in you. They're flocking to Jesus. And they're like, John, how do you feel about it? I mean, surely you're going to feel a bit put out and a bit insecure um, about the fact that that's happening. And John's like, whoa. He's like, no, no, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. And he's like, it's just my joy to hear his voice. He's come, I hear his voice. And it says in one version, and to see his success. To see the fact that people are being drawn to him. It's not about people being drawn to John the Baptist. It's about, it's about awakening and deepening love for Jesus. And so he's like, this is great. 
I love it. And it's in that context that we often, we, we quote this quite often, I must decrease. You know, he must increase and I must decrease. You know, I must decrease, he must increase. That decreasing and that increasing is in the context of he's saying, it's in the joy of the fact that actually, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And so that's what we long to see within the church. And so when we talk about being a bride, what we're talking about is becoming a people who, well, let's just think about what a bride is in the, in the kind of the natural sense. You know, a bride in the natural, when, when we come to a wedding, a bride is actually literally saying this, I forsake all other loves because I just want you. And so they're saying, the things, there are other things that I'm separating myself from. I'm choosing to stop looking elsewhere. I'm not in search of anything anymore. I'm 100% in, in this moment. And that's the church that Jesus is looking for. Because no groom would wish to stand at the altar with a bride who says to him, look, yeah, I don't mind the fact that we're getting married, but just so you know, I'm still looking around. You know, there's still, I've still got some irons and some fires and uh, some other things that I'm looking at, some other things I want to be involved in. So we'll kind of do this, but I'm not all in. You know, no groom would want that, and, and nor does Jesus. Jesus is looking for a, po- a church, a people, a bride, who can look him in the eye and say, I only want you. I'm all in, 100% in. I forsake other things. I turn from other loves and other passions and separate myself. And that's why we're using this term here that's in the Bible, virgin, because it's that imagery of that passion for purity. It's that saving ourselves for for Jesus. It's that devotion that is speaking for him. We're not as you were, and 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 I'll be careful in this language, but I want you to understand. We're not, as it were, sleeping around. We're, We're not looking elsewhere because Jesus is enough. And so we're not going after other things, but actually there's a longing that's for him. And so Eric Gilmore says that underneath all your needs is the satisfaction of your soul. Jesus is enough. And the satisfaction of Jesus frees us from the need of everything else. That's really quite a powerful statement. The satisfaction of Jesus frees us from the need of everything else. The more satisfied we become in him, the, the more we find that there are a lot of things we just don't need. <laughs> because he's enough. And so really becoming that bride that's not looking elsewhere, but is satisfied in him, is in love with him. And when inside the church, in the church, among the people of God, when there's this deep longing and this deep love and this deep lifestyle that that longing and love translates to, that says, I'm living, loving and living in a way that says Jesus is enough, something special begins to happen in the church. And so the Apostle Paul longed to see that. That's the bride that Jesus is coming back for. And so... These days that we live in now are actually crucial days because the Bible teaches us really that what we live in now is what we would call the engagement phase. It's the language that we see used in 2 Corinthians 11, promise, betrothed, espoused. When someone's promised to another or betrothed to another or espoused to another, that means there's a day of fulfillment that's coming that will result in a marriage, but there's an engagement. And so these are the days that It's about us as the church um, loving and living for Jesus in a way that is actually so that we are ready for him when he comes back. 
You know, any couple that gets engaged, they begin to get ready for the big day. There's certain things they do. It changes their decision-making, the way they live. Everything like that because they are in preparation for what is to come. And so actually, we're going to visit what is really, to be honest and truth, a pretty challenging scripture um, for us today. It's important that we do that. You know, I, I, I can't kind of dodge that or avoid that. We need a healthy challenge, a loving challenge. And so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 25 together today. But behind the heart of bringing this word is the, I want it, I pray, I ask God, help it to woo people to Jesus. Help it to awaken and deepen a love for him. And so Matthew 25 verse 1 to 13 is called the parable of the, of the ten virgins. Now some versions I know say bridesmaids. But this is a, the extension when you study this, it's, applicable, it's applying to the church, it's talking to the church, which is the bride of Christ, the bridesmaid here, it's the extension of the bridal party, it's talking to the bride, it's a marriage supper, it's a marriage scene of which we're looking at, and it is about how we should prepare as the bride of Christ uh, in preparation for wanting to and desiring to be part of that day that is coming when Jesus returns. Because we do all know this morning, don't we, that Jesus is coming back. Amen. So Matthew 25, verse 1 to 13 says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. When they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him, that word ready is really important, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The title of the message that I'm bringing to you today is Possessors and Professors. Possessors and Professors. Because there's a profession of uh, that they make, sorry, there's a profession they make in verse 11 where it says, and also, let me just find it, afterwards the other virgins came also saying, so they all made the same profession of faith, Lord, Lord, open to us. So it's really important that we understand that, and I'll revisit this in a minute, we're not talking about people who are disinterested. We're not talking about people who don't want anything to do with a groom. They all go out to meet him. They could have left if they so had the desire to, but their desire was to stay. So they are interested. They're wanting to be in and around things, and they all go out to meet him. And what we will see is they represent the church. They represent the church. But before we get to that, I just want to just back up a little bit and just talk about, in the context of what we're reading, the Jewish customs of engagement and marriage just to kind of help set the scene because they were really so much stronger um, than they are nowadays because three things were required of the groom um, to, to, to make this possible. 
First was that they would make a, a payment of a suitable dowry. Um, I, I don't know many married fellas in here today if, you, if you've done that. I can't think that's very common. Um, but here, there was a payment of a suitable dowry. But that dowry was to secure the engagement. It was to secure the marriage. And it was a very meaningful and significant sign of commitment. So that's why when we see the alabaster jar that gets broken, you realize the depth of that lady's worship because she broke the most precious thing that, that, that was on the shelf. It was part of something that was going to be significant in her marriage and it was part of wanting to give everything for him. But the guys would also bring this suitable dowry to secure this engagement and marriage. It was a promise, a deep and meaningful promise one to the other that was so strongly binding. It was like a bond. It was an inseparable bond. It was like a contract. It wasn't something that could flippantly be broken off like it can nowadays. Oh, they were engaged, but they're not now. He's changed his mind. No, it was, it was really meaningful. And the point is really this, that 2,000 years ago, when Christ first came, he paid a dowry for his bride with his own life upon the cross. The dowry, as it were, was his blood. He paid no greater price and that could give nothing more, more costly than to give his life. And that's why Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so his life was his dowry. It was his sign of commitment and his desire to be with his bride, the church, me and you. Secondly, during that engagement, before the marriage, the groom would go to prepare a home. The price, if you like, had been paid. The dowry had been secured. I don't say that, even using that phrase, not like in an object kind of way, like the price is paid, you know, for a, but it was a significant custom. That's what I want us to understand. The dowry was given, then they would go to prepare a home for him and his bride. Now, John chapter 14, you have to read that in your own time, tells us exactly when Jesus left, having given his life upon the cross and ascended to the Father, went to the Father, says there that he has been preparing a place for me and for you. You know, we sometimes use this phrase like, well, I, I, you know, I live here, but someone said to me the other day, you know, you know, Actually said to me, he said, where you live, do you, think that, do you feel like that's your forever home? He said, because I don't feel like it's my forever Jesus has been preparing a forever home. And that forever home is heaven. And I remember when Claire and me first got engaged, you know, before we got wed, we, we, we bought our first house. It needed work doing to it. It was a, it was a bit of a project. And, uh, you know, I was getting, I said, I said this earlier on in the first service, I said, I was getting that house ready. It was probably more Tim, who's my father-in-law. But I was definitely there. Um, support, you know, tea maker. It's an important role to play. And I was definitely there. So I'm, I'm, I'm counting it as, uh, yeah, uh, as a win. Um, but I remember the excitement in our heart every turn as we progressed in that thing because of the, what we were heading towards. The excitement in our heart of the moment that was going to come you know, when Claire would carry me across the threshold. <laughs> but the excitement that was in our heart of that moment, the anticipation that we felt that, that, that this was our home. Friends, what a, what a thought this morning that Jesus feels that way about you. Preparing a forever home of an anticipation and an excitement that he's going to bring us, his church, his bride, home to our forever home. When we're there, we're never going to think, oh, I, I, I think I might want to move. Oh, it's going to be mega. 
Thirdly, the groom was expected or more bound to return, having made those promises. There would be a day when he would come with great ceremony and to the house of his bride and he would bring her home, this marriage supper, this feast, this party that would take place, this scene of of great joy. And so one day Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's coming back for me and you. He's coming back for his church that forever we would be with him in heaven. And, you know, some people like might say, well, I, I really like those weddings that are like quiet and intimate ceremonies. Friends, I'm afraid I've got bad news for you if you're looking for a quiet and intimate ceremony at the marriage supper of the Lamb because the Bible says it is going to be loud and it is going to be full of joy. And it's going to be a level of joy that's inexpressible and unimaginable. It's a party that is off the charts. And so Revelation 6, uh, 19, verse 6 to 7 in the Amplified says, you know, that, does this sound like a quiet, intimate ceremony to you? Then I heard what sounded like the shout of a vast song, like the boom of many pounding waves and like the roar of a terrific and mighty peal of thunder, exclaiming, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! For now the Lord our God, the Omnipotent, the All-Ruler reigns. Let us rejoice and shout for joy exulting and triumphant, let us celebrate and ascribe to him glory and honor for the marriage of the Lamb at last has come and his bride has prepared herself and made herself ready. Wow. So we've got these three things that we hold, that we know he's paid his life. We know he's gone to prepare a place, but we know one day he's coming back. And it's into those days that Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 25, the days in which we live Now, this kind of in-between, betrothed, engaged phase. And verse 5 tells us that the king and the groom had been delayed. There'd been this delay. Now, there's nothing um, unexpected about that because consistently we see that there is these days that that we now live in the days of what you might call a delay between his first and second coming. There's lots of scriptures that we could look at that teach about that. But there are some really interesting observations that I want to just journey through with you in in Matthew 25 to woo and deepen and awaken love for Jesus. Because it's really interesting that in these days, it's like the the ten, the five foolish and the five wise, they're they're almost indistinguishable. There's so much that they, they look the same, they sound the same, they do a lot of the same things, they're in the same place, they act in a lot of ways the same. There is one big difference, which we're going to come to in a moment, but as I said, they look the same, they're invited to the same wedding, they're expected to be part of the same wedding, they do a lot of the same things. All ten of them sleep. It's not the case that the five wise were awake and busy and the five foolish sleeping. You're not foolish if you sleep in your everyday rhythms of life. That's not, not, that's not about that. Verse 11, as I said, they make the same profession. Lord, Lord. They all address the groom in the same way. Fourth, they all go out to meet him. We're not talking about atheists. We're not talking about agnostics. We're not talking about horribly wicked people. They represent the church. All ten have the same call upon their lives. All ten have the same job. To uh, shine their light. And verse 10, to be ready when the groom returns. And lastly, every one of them has the same access to the same means to fulfill the call that's upon their life. The same uh, access to a lamp. Five were not given a lamp and five denied a lamp. 
Five had access to a lamp. Five had access to an oil. So no one is set at a disadvantage. But we see that there are professors and possessors, and the two are different. There are some who just profess, but there are some who profess and possess. But we won't be able to tell the difference, it seems here, until the Lord returns in some ways. In some ways, we're not going to be able to tell the difference. Sometimes, of course, I know in church life it might become obvious, but there's, some, there's something here that says actually it's not until he returns that we begin to see it really hones down to what is the difference. And the difference is that five had something that five didn't. They could have, but they didn't. And that's the deal breaker when the groom returns because in verse 3 to 4, it says, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil. And that word no is key. No oil. It says with them, but, so they could have, they had access to it, they could have chosen to, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. That's the difference. And the point isn't that 50% of the church are wise and 50% of the church are foolish. We're not running a line down the middle and saying five where five weren't, so this side's wise and this side's not. It's nothing like that. It's not about that. That's incidental. But it's talking to us that in these days, really, friends, and that's why I said to you earlier, it's a challenging message. As my friend Matt Richards would say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. The truth of the matter is we live in days when some in the church will live wisely and some will live foolishly. Verse 10 says, it was those who were ready who went into the marriage feast and then the door was shut. And so actually it was down to every individual whether they used the time and the resources and opportunity that had been afforded them to shine and to be ready. There's no difference except the foolish bought lamps, but no oil. The wise took the lamps and the oil. Literally, five took the call upon them to shine, to give light, and to get ready seriously. Five neglected it. Friends, there's a message that this is teaching that we, we, we have to still hear in the church. We have to still hear in the church. And that's this one. That the outward form of religion isn't the same as the inner life of faith. The outward form of religion isn't the same as the inner life of faith. Because five of them are loving to be around things. Oh, I love to be around that. I want to be around that. I want to be a part of that. Otherwise, like I said, they would have cleared off. They could have left. We see that happens in church life. I love the atmosphere. And, you know, someone said to me just recently, I love the vibe. Now, I want people to love coming in and, and feel the, the presence of God and, and feel the peace and, and, and the love, etc., that, that is in this building. But that must not be where it stops. Because, friends, the call that's upon us as the church the call that's upon us as the bride isn't just attendance. Church attendance isn't just the call. It's about loving and living for Jesus with the inner life, the inner reality of a life of faith. That you love Him and you trust Him and that's reflected in the way you live your life because sadly, they, five of them seem to wander down the, the, the wrong train of thought it would seem in thinking initially, well, my lamp will be enough. 
don't matter if I don't take any oil with me. The lamp will be enough. And so what they didn't realize was that it wasn't about having a lamp in itself. It's what was in the lamp that mattered. And that lamp, if you like, if we just take that as on its own, just reflecting somehow kind of like, maybe like religion, there's some people who are holding on to it, just thinking, well, I've got a lamp and I'll shine it and I'll attend and I'll go and be part of things or around the uh, things and everything like that because I enjoy it and it's great and I, I love the vibe or, or anything, anything like that. But when Jesus comes back, it's not just friends that you're carrying a lamp, it's what's in the lamp. Is the inner life of faith and reality there? of obedience and love and passion and faithfulness. So those things there, because it's not about just the lamp, it's about possessing that inner life, that power, that oil. Because that's what helped them to shine and be ready. So five, it would seem to have religion, and five seem to have life. Five who are just professing, but five who are professing and possessing. Second train of thought that they went down that was a wrong one was thinking they could borrow the power to light the lamp at the last minute. We see this scramble at midnight when the cry goes out that the groom's back and they come out to meet him and there's this like last minute scramble and you know, what can we say about when the Lord comes back? Well, just give me a show of hands today. How many of you have been to a wedding that started at midnight? I mean, this started at midnight. So for one, we can't punish them to being drowsy and sleeping at midnight. It's okay that they were sleeping. I'll come back to that. Secondly, not many of us have been invited to a wedding that starts at midnight on the current clock in the place wherever it is where we live in. And so that just teaches us what's consistent through Scripture that when Jesus returns, it's going to be surprising and unexpected. And there's a lot of Scripture that, that, that backs that up. That's what the Bible teaches us about the return of Christ. Matthew 24, 44. You must also be ready. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Mark 13, 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Beth, have you got these scriptures for me? Just pop them up there. Nor the Son, but only the Father. And uh, Matthew 25, verse 13 in our story today, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So we've got to live with this kind of readiness. So when the Bible says here, you know, watch, Watch therefore, Jesus says, watch therefore, for you don't know that. That doesn't mean go and find yourself a mountain and just stand up there gazing into the sky. It's going to come back. As I said to you, this whole thing about sleeping in the story is interesting because I just think really from studying that and looking at that, it just represents ordinary, ordinary everyday life. It's not like, dang, five of you, you, you know, you're all sleeping, guys, you're not in. There was, it wasn't anything about being wise. It's just the everyday, ordinary activities of life. We sleep, we wake, we work, we rest, we sleep, repeat, all that kind of stuff. It's just basically saying this. Learn as the church to live in a way that's ready and shining and ready in your everyday, ordinary lives. Live, seek to live in that way. Love Him in that way. Ready that He could come back at any moment. And he could come back at any moment. You know, I said, you know, when I studied it, you know, I sort of said, it, it can sound like preacher hype or like you're trying to scare someone. You say, well, you better get ready because Jesus could come back this afternoon. And it was like, you know, he's just trying to scare me into salvation. Friends, it's the truth. He could. Some people might have used it to try and sort of, kind of, you know, 
hurry things along, but it is the truth. He could. I don't know. Only the Father knows. Jesus said that himself. Only the Father knows. So we want to live ready, but that's you know one wrong train of thought that, that they went down. The lamp was enough. A second one thinking they can borrow at the last minute. And, but then when I used to read it, I used to think to myself, why couldn't they borrow? I mean, this is not very Christian, God. There's five people in here who wouldn't share, and sharing is caring. You know, why couldn't they give them a bit of oil? I mean, pass it around. That's the, that's the decent Christian thing to do. But actually, what they were asking of them was the impossible, because in the context, it's oil. But the meaning of the parable is deeper. What they were actually saying was this, let me borrow some of your faith. Let me borrow some of your obedience. Let me borrow some of your... Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit that's living inside of you, the light that's inside of you. Let me borrow some of your faithfulness. Friends, none of us get into heaven on secondhand faith. Secondhand light, power of the Holy Spirit, obedience or faithfulness. It's a personal thing. That's why our young people have to hear the message. No one's going to heaven on mum and dad's faith. It's about your own life of faith or husbands or wives just because, the, you know, oh, well, that's okay because they are, you know, the other half is. No, 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 it's about me, each one of us responding individually. And so actually their response wasn't selfish, like, get away. I'm going in and you're not. That wasn't what it was about. It was basically what they were saying to us, I can't have faith for you. I can't create obedience for you. I, I, I can't create the power of the Holy Spirit and that light living in you. It's down to you. And so that's why the message of this is that we have to realize now is the time to deepen and develop those things in our life, to live for him, to deepen our, those things in our life, to, to follow him, to use all the means that are available to know him and love him and live spiritually awake and alert and alive for Jesus and ready because we don't want to see a scene in the church whereby what we end up with is perhaps some people who get lulled into a false sense of assurance or security thinking it's okay, I'll be okay, I'll just shine my lamp and do those things and hang around and go to church. They need to understand we need this inner life of faith that we call salvation. Because it's sad and sobering that when the cry goes out, the groom is here, it says they all grab their lamps and start trimming their wicks. And then suddenly it's like, bah, the moment comes and they realize the mistake they've made, and what they run for is something that is absolutely impossible, which is lastminute.com, faith, obedience, and life. It's absolutely impossible to grab that right at the very last minute because the Bible teaches us that there is a day, friends, when the door will shut. There is a day when we go beyond the point of no return, and so we can't slip into the, well, I'll do that later in life, I'll enjoy this and do that and push it off until at some point in time, because we don't know when Jesus is going to come back, and we don't want to find ourselves in the place where he suddenly turns up, the door shuts, and we're on the outside going, Lord, Lord, let us in, I went to church, I hung around, I said the right things, was with the right people, went to the right places, and Jesus turns around and says, I didn't know you and you didn't know me. And it's a message that we have to hear in the church. We can't grab that end time faith and obedience and faithfulness. We can't slip into, I don't need any oil yet, or I've got time and I'll grab some last minute. You know, lulled into a false sense of security. No, these are days when we get ourselves ready. No bride turns up at the altar not ready. 
or decides, actually, what I'll do is just before I meet the groom at the front and I'm going down the aisle, I'll, I'll, I'll get ready. I mean, it'd be mad, wouldn't it? There's a period of preparation in the excitement and anticipation of what is to come. And so you say, well, Daryl, why are you preaching this to rob those who really love Jesus of their assurance of salvation? Absolutely not. If you love Jesus, you're passionate about Jesus, you're living for him, you're following him, then absolutely you have a full assurance of salvation. I'm not leaving you teetering on the edge today, wondering if you're on the inside or the outside. But friends, there also has to be a wake-up call in the church in case there's anyone living with a false sense of assurance. I have to do that before God. That's my job. I have to preach that message because if there is, then it would awaken and deepen love for Christ and it would woo people to Jesus. Because Jesus says in verse 12, it's not about all that other stuff. It comes down to this. Whether he knew you and you knew him. To know and to be known. There's no power in an empty lamp of religion. It doesn't save me. No intellectual knowing saves me. It's a personal knowing. Being known by him. That's the oil that causes you to shine and be ready. And Jesus doesn't want anyone. Doesn't want a church. That's just going to church going, I shine my nice lamp. He wants us to take care of what's inside. It's not a question of whether from the outside it looks like faith. It's what matters. Is there an inner life of faith? An inner reality? Trimming an empty lamp doesn't save anyone. This is the life and power there. Is there oil in your lamp? Are you saved? Say, how am I saved? How do you know if someone... How do you know someone's saved? Well, friends... It's not what you know, but who you know. It doesn't matter how long we've been in church and, you know, what we might intellectually know. It's not what we know, but who we know. Man, I know you can dodge them if you want to, but scriptures like Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, when the guys are there and there's that whole wedding feast and that whole scene again, you know, that's going on and they're saying, but didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do miracles? And Jesus says to him, but I never knew you. That's what it comes down to. Know is to know and to be known. It's to, in these days, to cultivate a personal relationship with the bridegroom. That's what matters more than anything else. That's what, that's what they're looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what God is looking for when Jesus comes back. It's a bride that know him. That's the key to eternal life. Doesn't matter how many good works we do and all that jazz john 17 verse 3 says this is eternal life that you know the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent do you know him know him know him that word know means to be come acquainted with personally know him it was a jewish idiom for intimacy do you have a knowing intimate relationship with jesus he came, he paid a dowry, he gave his life, he's paid a price, he's betrothed the bride, the church, the people of God to himself. And everyone who loves him is part of that bride, that full assurance. They're living and loving and following him. But please, just going to church will never be enough. Never be kind of lulled into that. It comes down, do I know him? Am I a possessor or just a professor? Now's the time, as I said earlier, as I finished. Now is the time. Ban, perhaps you could just come back. Now is the time to use the time, the opportunity, the days, the resources, 
that God has given us to know Him, to love Him, to trust Him. All ten, as I said in this story, have the same opportunity. They have the same chance to get oil. But five take it and five don't. But I really want to urge us today, use these days to be filled with the oil of the power of the Holy Spirit, of love, of life, of faith, obedience, joy, and hope. Get ready. Prepare for that day. These days are days of opportunity. Grab a hold of them. They matter. Live wise. Be wise. Because there's a joy beyond anything we've experienced or imagined awaiting His bride when He comes. So I want to ask you today at room, in the room and at home, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Is it personal? Are you ready? Let me pose that question. If he did come this afternoon, are you shining your light? Are you ready? Are you ready to go in? Or are you concerned you'd find yourself on the outside knocking? Lord, Lord. And Jesus is saying, that's not about that. It's about being known and knowing him. I want to ask anyone who's sitting here saying, I need to respond. In my heart, I need to respond. I need to really give my life to Jesus and live for him. And it, as I said, friends, it doesn't matter how many years we've been around church or anything like that. We're not talking about knowing in our heads, but in our hearts. Do you know? Do you have that assurance? Do you know? I'm going to just pray and lead us in a simple prayer. The Bible's very clear that we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouth. So just saying this out loud doesn't in itself just save you. It's believing in your heart, combining with what you're confessing with your mouth that saves you. If you just repeat a cold prayer, that's, that's not enough because it's a response from the heart. Jesus wants your heart this morning. He wants your heart. And so I'm going to say this prayer, and if you want to sit where you are and you want to say it, you can say it quietly to yourself. You can say it under your breath, friends. You can stand to your feet and shout it out if you want. I don't mind. But you need to respond to Jesus in some way. Then I'll just, then just read it with me. Say it with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I need you. I need your grace to forgive me and your love to change me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please forgive me for the sin in my life. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And with your help, I will live my life for you. Amen.